Welcome to the Three Wins Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lydon. If you're a business owner or in senior leadership at your company, you've come to the right place. The Three Wins Podcast is presented by Legacy Advisory Partners, an Atlanta-based financial services firm that believes that the key to unleashing your company's full potential is to evaluate business performance using the Three Wins Framework. What exactly are the three wins? The starting point is the shareholder win. What does the business owner want to accomplish financially and by when? Second, the company win. What does the company need to achieve to support the owner's financial goals? And finally, the key leader win. How can the company help key leaders reach their financial goals, which in turn will contribute to both the company and shareholder wins? The idea here is that when you pursue the shareholder, company, and key leader wins all in concert, you'll see a level of collaboration in your business that becomes a force multiplier to achieve breakthrough performance. The legacy team calls this dynamic the collaboration effect on profits. And in the Three Wins podcast, we help you discover and deploy the financial strategies and tools you need to put the collaboration effect on profits in motion in your business and in your personal financial life. So let's dive into this episode. Today, I'm with Russ Clemmer on the executive team at Legacy Advisory Partners, and we have a special guest joining us today, Bill Barber, the principal at WTB Consulting in Atlanta. And what we're going to be talking about in this episode is why now is the time to strengthen your company's value chain to survive and thrive in this brave new COVID-19 world. We're recording this on April 30th, 2020. And to set the stage, a few things, several things have actually been going on right now. Most of the U.S. is still under strict stay-at-home orders. By now, many Americans have received federal stimulus checks, but this initial stimulus money to fund the PPP, that's the Paycheck Protection Program loan, intended to help small businesses stay afloat and keep their employees on the payroll, that dried up. So Congress recently authorized an additional few hundred billion to replenish that program. And most states are mapping out their plans to a phased approach to reopening their, their economies. And a handful of states like Georgia have already started reopening. But before we dive into our discussion today, let's start by introducing our guest. Bill, if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself and your career well, in business. Uh, start off when you hear the history behind me, uh, you're going to try and figure out my age. <laughs> and uh, I'm a senior citizen by all accounts, according to my wife. Uh, but my uh, career spans across the whole gamut, pretty much in corporate America, with largely held, publicly held companies that have global brands and have global problems. Okay. Uh, spent 15 years in air transportation and uh, ground transportation logistics yeah. uh, with a company called Emory Worldwide, not to be confused with Emory Healthcare. Uh, with that, um, there was my first introduction into starting in a sales position, mm -hmm. working my way up the corporate ladder, mm -hmm. and eventually becoming the senior vice president of sales for the $1.2 billion organization. Sure. But along that path, those opportunities in terms of 
different experiences, whether it was an operation, sales, finance, kind of rounded out uh, my professional uh, credentials. Yeah. Along with that, I ended up going and getting an MBA at Georgia State uh, later in my career. Uh, it was one of those things where I thought they'd go easy on individuals <laughs> like myself that had a full-time job. Yeah. That, uh, but that wasn't the case. They, they put us through the ringer. Yeah. We got through that element. And again, it was just to round out my understanding of business, mm. getting my MBA. Uh, with that, um, what you're learning, as anyone does, uh, going through the year, some things are in your control and some things are out of your control. Well, the company that I was aspiring to become the president of, uh, it was taken away because a corporate conglomerate came in and acquired us wow. through a leverage buyout. Okay. That in turn put me in the open market and of all places, the Coca-Cola company made me an offer. So I came down from Connecticut, an individual that only knew about the product because I was a high consumer yeah. of Diet Coke, uh, but no consumer background. What, what year was this? This was back in 1989. Okay, so that was that during Goizeta's? Oh, absolutely. Uh, turn? Okay, yeah. gotcha. In okay. fact, uh, it's interesting when you go through life, you always look towards mentors and people that you learn from. Absolutely. Roberto was one of them. Uh, his successor, uh, Doug Ivester, yep. really became a mentor of mine uh, at the Coca-Cola company. And there, here you got to think about this, an outsider coming into a company he has no background in. Mm -hmm. He's from the north. He's going in to oversee operations in one of the divisions. And so you can imagine sitting on the other side of that desk, people yeah. ask themselves, why him and not me? Right. But the thing that Guzetta said at the time is that they were getting too myopic in their thinking. Everybody was inbred. And therefore, they needed outside influence, outside experience to come in and help them in what we call diversity of thought in order to come up with the best ideas, the best solutions, and the best movements going forward. So when I first came in, they put me in charge of developing a new business system for the Coca-Cola company um, based on my logistics background. So you went from a sales background in logistics, but when you joined Coca-Cola, you took on more of an operations Operation. role, but now, drawing on yeah. the logistics background? Now in that, in that climbing the corporate ladder at Emory, um, they gave me the opportunity because I had a background in sales and marketing mm -hmm. that to send me out into the field and run a division. Okay. So to get the operational experience to further balance me out coming back to headquarters. Sure. So with Coke, what they saw was a sales and marketing individual with an operations uh, background as well. Mm -hmm. And so they put me in charge of this project. We developed a business system that Don Keogh was the individual yeah. that was heading up the project. And we ended up turning that over to the bottling network, which they implemented in the state of Florida with the bottlers. Okay. Once that was completed, Coke said, okay, we're going to put you in charge of the Southeast, which is the heartland of Coca-Cola. Yeah. So I took over the, uh, the nine States for the fountain division. And along that road, you learn not only are you operating a business, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. within the Coca-Cola company. But one thing that I found very ironic, compare and contrast between Coke and Emory. Yeah. Emory had very, very tight margins in logistics, which is common. Sure. When I came into Coke, they printed money. It was, it was the most profitable corporation I'd ever seen and experienced personally. Sure. So if money could solve a problem, you had no problem garnering the resources. Mm. But what they found was more importantly, they were looking at problems the same way they always looked at problems. And so we would collectively get different people from different organizations inside the Coca-Cola company to go forward and solve a problem. And we did that with uh, the Olympics okay. that were coming to Atlanta and what was going to be entailed uh, mm -hmm. in not only delivering an exceptional experience for all the consumers and all the visitors to Atlanta, but more importantly, get an organization's mindset around uh, rising to the occasion. Mm -hmm. So Coke during that period of time, and this was under Rosetta's leadership, because yeah. we spent a lot of time developing what we call leadership skills and how to develop high performance teams, how to respond with individuals within a group setting to tackle whatever comes your way. Mm -hmm. So from that, they then turned after we were done with the Olympics, they turned around and gave me uh, the business model for the entire global operation of their second largest food service customer. Wow. And so there now it's a nuance with me within Coke, not only knowing the domestic end of this and dealing with a, a food service customer, but dealing with them globally Absolutely. and orchestrating that. So as I'm doing that at the same time, Y2K is approaching. Yeah. And Coca-Cola here again had the resources to put together the, the best engineers, the best IT people. Well, they threw me into the mix uh, in looking at, at Y2K. And it was not from an IT perspective or anything. Okay. It was more from the consumer, the client base. What is it for them to understand what we're doing? Because again, if you think about Y2K and the problem it was going to present mm -hmm. potentially, businesses were going to collapse. Yes. Systems were going to go down completely, yeah, I remember which that, raised yeah. the question, what do you do? And so as we were building, I mean, uh, just a phenomenal platform globally, because we had so many bottlers to deal with, so many different systems to deal with, and mm -hmm. so many clients to deal with, all these were incorporated in this four volume uh, plan to deal with in the event things go wrong. Well, I was able to take that learning. And again, this was something that Coke always did with their clients is I took that to the food service client who was, had their own Y2K yeah. group. And what you find there is, is that no one has all the answers. And so they were looking for, have we covered things? Are we doing anything differently that Coke you're not doing? And one of the things, uh, and I told this to Russ, this story, is it was interesting in, in sitting around this table with all these people. Mm -hmm. And hey, I raised- When you the, say all these people, who, who's oh, sitting at that table? Give me uh, a were, picture were, of that. Yeah, there was the, the CEO, the president, the CFO, so the leadership team. Of, of the, the food team, services company. Yeah, of okay. IT, everybody associated 
Okay. And I raised a question. I said, can your employees make change? And I, I got a blank stare. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, well, yeah. And I said, well, we've gone out and we've checked random sample to see if the people behind the counter could take an order and make change without the register. Gotcha. They couldn't. They got confused. They got it. So they go, oh my God, how we deal with this? And I said, well, there's a simple way to deal with it. What we did find out is they could handle uh, a big, simple calculator. Mm. So if I give you a 10 and you owe five minus, just had a plus and minus key to it. Right. I said they could, they could do it and they could do it efficiently and fast. And I said, then the other thing you got to think about is why are you doing with pennies? Why change? Roll your figures up, round them out. You'll pay your taxes later on, on sales tax and the like. You can figure mm -hmm. that out. But the idea here is put yourself in the place of the people that have got to go implement your plan. So if I understand correctly, what you were doing in that room as you were wargaming, if for any reason things don't go according to plan in terms of this transition for Y2K, what analog uh, backup plans do we have in order to keep the business running? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Accurate? And again, okay. it gets down to like what I found in business continuity and disaster planning is mm -hmm. a lot of these are done in silos. And what I mean by silos, by functionality within organizations. And while they may be very astute and, and deal with whatever they're planning for, they lack the communication across the functions mm -hmm. to determine, well, will this work? Right. And so even in the case of Y2K, fortunately, it didn't happen. All the millions right. and all the hours and everything that were associated with it um, didn't have to be implemented, but it finally got people, companies, leaders to start thinking about what is business continuity? What is disaster recovery planning? Mm -hmm. And it gets back to risk reward. What is the element of risk that the situation uh, has within the organization? What's it going to cost? And how do we mitigate that? Mm -hmm. So, that being said, with Y2K, it's a non-event. Right. But it showed that collectively, companies can deal with anything as long as you look at it from beginning to end, mm -hmm. where your resources you're dependent upon, all the way back to the uh, the early stage of development of your product, to the internally into your organization, where do they exist? Mm -hmm the end user and that that'll get I'll, I'll explain more about the value chain um how that uh that connects yeah and and, and i want to dig deeper on that in, in a couple moments here just so i understand in terms of your background so at that time that you were wargaming with the food services company prior to y2k you were you were still with coca-cola company oh absolutely this all the way one through of your, yeah what was this food services company part of your distribution network or what was the relationship of that company in terms of 
you going in and help, they were a helping them? Okay. They were our second largest customer. So they were, they were a buyer of our products for the Coca-Cola company. But what, we, what any client, if you talk to anyone that deals on a large scale with Coke, Coke goes way beyond just offering you a beverage. It's a partnership. It's a partnership. And our learnings are transmitted to our clients on a regular basis. And that's where you build the relationship. Mm-hmm. You're more an extension of their company and their well-being. Because as we at Coke used to view it as, without them, we're out of business. Absolutely. And so that's why you have to always put the client on the table and say, what value are you delivering? Because if you got a commodity, anybody can price it. Yeah. Yeah, it's that partnership, I, I imagine, is what, it, what, what makes that commodity company a much more valuable company. Absolutely. Now, from that, in uh, 2000, mm-hmm. um, two former executives of Coke that I knew um, had asked me to leave the Coca-Cola company and join them at a publicly traded company here in Atlanta with the intent of taking the company private. It was publicly traded. Okay. And that once it went private, uh, I would run it. And uh, so I made the move. I I knew I was never going to be president of the Coca-Cola company. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, but this was yet a a new opportunity. I trusted. What what type of industry? This was a commercial security and aviation secured. Okay. So um, once again, new environment in terms of an industry. And this was uh, right at the cusp of 9-11 or right after 9-11? Right before it. Yeah, wow. What we had done was we had built a plan that it was gonna be a management buyout Mm -hmm. to take the company private. And in doing so, because you're publicly traded, you have an obligation to go out to shareholders and say, the company is up for sale. Sure. And when we did that, and there was a, uh, a market value put on the company, which we were going to, uh, to purchase it at, mm-hmm. a British conglomerate in the same field, but had no U.S. operations, got wind of it. And uh, they said, we'd like to, to look at you, do the due diligence, and if everything right. works, we'd like to buy you. So we threw out a figure. It was almost double what the market value was. (laughs) And the response was, that sounds reasonable. You get, we'll go through the due diligence. The only requirement at this was July. July of 2000. uh, 2000. 2000. July of 2000. uh, The only requirement we have is that we've got to close by the end of the year for tax reasons. Hmm. Okay. So a very fast turnaround. So we went through the due diligence. Everything's set. Company sold to a company called SecureCore, PLC in uh, London. Okay. They were roughly around 2.4 billion, I think, at the time. We were a 400 million dollar company. They were about 2.4 billion, mm-hmm. and uh, we would be their entry into the U.S. market for commercial and aviation security. Yeah. So when uh, that deal took place. They offered me the job uh, to head up the company. So once again, new owners, new culture, 
yeah. blending two companies together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we had roughly around 16,000 employees at the time. Mm. As we're going through this integration period, 9-11 happened. <laughs> we were the largest purveyor of aviation security in the country. Wow. We had operations in Boston, Newark, and Dulles. So that turned our world upside down. And literally, I could give you a minute-by-minute -minute picture of what took place that day when the first plane hit the towers. Actually, I would love to hear it. Um, and as the day unfolded, the phone started ringing. Yeah. At one point, I had American and United Airlines head of aviations on the line, the FBI on the line, wow. the CIA on the line. And again, everyone trying to figure out what's going on. At the same time. And when you say they're trying to figure out what's going on, what what is the purview that you have? What are you seeing and how are you able to answer them at that at that see, time? Well, this is what's interesting. They were inquiring as to what terminals are you at? Um, do you have records of employees that were, were stationed at that time? All these questions are being asked, even though we don't know okay. um, what the ramifications or the implications of what was taking place. It was and your security I, product was or, or service was doing what? What airport what was screening? Your, got it. Okay. So um, we were doing airport screening and also baggage screening. Okay. So your your product or service would have some way recorded the people that would have correct. Got it. Okay. Um, so, and and again, you got to remember while we were contracted by the airlines, we were under the purview of the FAA. Um, in their rules and regulations. Okay. So uh, that day actually came and went. The next six months, I spent time in basically day by day in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. talking uh, along with other purveyors of aviation security from around the globe. Yeah. Talking to congressmen because the McCain Hollings bill was passed. Fast track passed, which meant nationalizing the industry. The nationalizing only way we could, the aviation industry. Yeah, the only way we could defeat it is if we got the House to put up their own bill. Mm -hmm. And that way it would go into conference. And then a bill would come out. Okay. So for six months, I was a lobbyist. Um, okay. And literally probably met most of the congressmen uh, and most of the senators. Mm -hmm. that were not for uh, federalizing the workforce, sure. which is what we know as the TSA. Right. Well, best laid out plans. We defeated the bill, the Senate bill, okay. in the House by two votes. Wow. It goes into conference. Andy Carr, who was President Bush's uh, chief of staff, mm -hmm. uh, met with us afterwards at a dinner. I won't tell you the steakhouse, but it's a very famous sure. steakhouse in DC. Yeah. Toasting everybody on what a fine job we did and that uh, President Bush was behind us 100% because what we were advocating was a private public uh, engagement. 
mm-hmm. whereby just as we experienced in our operations overseas, and we were the largest purveyors of aviation at um, Heathrow, mm-hmm. at Charles de Gaulle, all the major airports that dealt with threats on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, we were the contractors. The government was our, uh, our client. Got it. And so taking the airlines out of the equation. Well, it went into conference and uh, I forget which, uh, which senator was uh, from the uh, Democrat side, met with Bush, uh, had a, a tit-to-tat on, they wanted the screeners to be federal employees. Um, and if Bush wanted to continue the honeymoon, if you remember after 9-11, it was all about bipartisanship. Absolutely. That uh, they wanted those screeners. So Bush came out in the Rose Garden that morning and a reporter asked him a question. Well, President Bush, uh, when, when is the bill going to come out of, uh, out of conference? And he said, well, I don't know what the holdup is, but whatever comes out, I'll sign it which went diametrically opposed to what he had told what he had said, yeah. through Andy Carr to us. Wow. So um, long story short, you TSA lost client. Came, we lost the client. Yeah. TSA came in, uh, the formation of that. The obligation then was given to us as the current providers to orchestrate a transition wow. over to government control. Yeah. And they thought it could be done in 30 days (laughs) it took so it would be seamless two and a half years to finally integrate the tsa as it's known today throughout the uh the airports so what happened to the your company did it have to unwind did you well the uh we got restitution because it was nationalized sure one one dollar for a 400 million dollar company and we ended up selling whatever assets we had mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, then I said, I'm retired <laughs> <laughs> at that point in time to, uh, and I love the company SecureCore, but I just said, yeah. you know, I've done enough. And what year was that? 2004 when you finally yeah, left? Okay. 2004. Um, and then I thought, okay, I'm going to enjoy retirement a little bit with my family and friends. And uh, I got introduced to an individual here in Atlanta uh, that was forming a company to deal with emergency preparedness. Okay. So he was kind of intrigued by my background and what I experienced. And he asked me to join his advisory board, which I did. Okay. And six months later, he said, Bill, why don't you just come on board with me and let's figure this out. Awesome. So uh, at that point, I came out of retirement joined uh, a company we called GoToGear. Okay. And it dealt in emergency preparedness at the workforce level. In other words, when an event takes place, mm-hmm. what do your employees do? Um, and it became even more evident that this was applicable across all industries. Yeah, I was gonna ask you if there was a specific industry you oh, worked with. The, uh, the sentinel moment was Katrina. When Katrina came through New Orleans, no one understood the magnitude and the devastation that that hurricane created. Absolutely. One of our clients, which is a telecommunications company, 
that had uh, a network throughout the South asked us to come in and do a post-evaluation because two things happened. Their way of communicating with their employees vanished mm -hmm. in their preparedness plan. Right. And regarding their preparedness plan, no one seemed to know in the field what that was. Yeah. So again, when you take, when you start looking at things objectively, one of the things, and they had a very elaborate plan, the plan, one of the minor fixes that could have solved a lot of problems is when their communication towers went down, their IT people knew this, but the operations people didn't, that Blackberry still worked through a ping process. Gotcha. So had that been part of the plan, a backup plan, if you don't have communication with your towers, those possessing Blackberries, which at the time, pretty much all management and supervision had them, mm -hmm. you could communicate. And then the second part was, and it's, it's fundamental in a lot of plans these days, is that the employees didn't know what right. to do. So they lost all contact for somewhere to 72 hours. They didn't know if people were alive, dead. It was that, that era of, oh my God, yeah, what's happening out there? So what you find in, in, in the planning process is a lot of plans have a lot of energy and a lot built in, mm -hmm. but if they're not communicated to their workforce, for those to say, okay, this is what my role is now, in the event this happens, then you're still a little lost. Right. So that gave us um, even further uh, evidence that more companies need to know, one, how to plan, mm -hmm. and then how to execute those plans. Absolutely. And so our business started to grow. Well, then, as it was growing, we found out because it was twofold, we were introducing products in the era of preparedness. Sure. Um, but we were also educating mm -hmm. uh, the workforce on what to do. And we, we decided at that point in time that we needed to make this application scalable. And we could do that if we turned the product into a software platform. Okay. Now, mind you, at the time, this is four individuals. Yeah. So, so as we're kind of figuring this out from a, uh, a, plan, a software application, right? well, anytime you have a software application, you got to get someone to program it. Yep. Someone to ensure that it works. <laughs> and debug it. Yeah, and debug it. And yeah. before you can go to your client base and say, here you go. Yeah, exactly. So we changed the name to prepare us. Okay. We went to a learning platform that was now just starting to gain uh, momentum in the mm. training industry, whereby it used to be videos that they would send to you or read a manual. Yeah. Well, now they were starting to accept online training. Okay. Where you could get groups of people just logging in on the computer, Mm -hmm. and going through a learning process that way and coming out with the end result, which is an educated individual. Okay. Understanding the plan, understanding what the roles and responsibilities were. So 
that dawned that aspect. So now we've gone from a products and a, mm-hmm. let's call it consulting training role sure. to a software platform yep. to now, okay, what industries, what clients would this apply to? Right. And with situations, create opportunities. Mm-hmm. Right at that point in time, uh, a healthcare organization in Atlanta, a major one, called us and said, tell us if we're prepared for a pandemic. <laughs> How appropriate. And, and what, what, what year was this? It was 2009. Okay. This is the swine flu. So with that, we were able to go in and one, evaluate their plan, mm-hmm. which from a healthcare perspective was pretty elaborate. Mm-hmm. And it was very good in terms of what we call triaging, as hospitals do, sure. and understanding urgencies, people that need uh, the most care versus the groups that need the least care. Absolutely. And then how do you deal with those? Working with the emergency management systems of the state, they did testing, mock uh, uh, ideas of you know where we'll do immunization for vaccines, how will we get the product to there? So all these things are are covered in a very nice way. The swine flu didn't evolve to the planning stage that we're currently existing today, COVID-19. But during that period of time and working with the hospital, not only were we able to test their communication plan, but also elevate it so that it encompassed more of the entities that they controlled, including Mm -hmm. an entire university that they were responsible for. So you start to expand your thinking, you start to expand your risk reward, and what that is going to cost. And the reality today with COVID-19 is one, totally unprecedented as to what this has had an impact on you personally mm-hmm. and professionally. Yeah. Um, I don't think any plan would have gone to the extent of understanding what a complete shutdown, not only of your region, but mm-hmm. of your country and mm-hmm. of a globe. So today, what individuals, hopefully as leaders of their organizations are plowing through, where were we before? Uh, COVID-19, where is my organization today? What are the implications of what's taking place? Going back through that value chain all the way from start to finish. Because if there's anything broken along that line, you've got to solve it Yeah. in order to get back to what you claim is your normal. Now, when you say that line, you're referring to the value chain, correct? Yes. Let's go ahead and unpack that. Define what you mean by the value chain. Are you referring to, because I know it's commonly from uh, uh, Michael Porter kind of coined that phrase, but from your perspective, what is the value chain? And if you can define that for us. Yeah, the value chain encompasses everything from where you source, whatever you're sourcing, to bring into your organization, to the organization itself, 
and think of it as a process, your input, your okay, process. When you say sourcing, what do you mean? Uh, sourcing, it, it can be everything from your vendors. Okay. And very few people even think about that, the vendors' vendors. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing it right now, Sean, in how complicated things are getting in that farmers have produced material that can't get to market. Because of the restaurants. Right. And if, and if I'm a restaurateur, if I want to be open during this time, if I'm allowed to be open, mm -hmm. do I still have that throughput? Okay. And the reality here is, is that most companies just figure out, okay, all I need is a consumer or whoever buys my product. Are they still in place? Well, if you don't have the wherewithal, the ability to, as you were two and a half months ago, right. And bringing that material to the forefront, then you've got to do some problem solving. And when you look at a value chain, you look at first, are you still going to be able to produce value out of this entity to, a, so that to whoever's first, going to purchase it? So that first link is what? Is that the supply chain to ensure yeah. that you can source Absolutely. the product? Okay, I would so. look at it as in, it's an entirety. I would go and in, in look in the rears in terms of who do I rely on for material, for okay. whatever it is. And it can be intellectual. It could be right. hard goods, right? It can be anything. And the okay, question so you have to ask, question you have to ask yourself, even during this period of time, one, are they still in business? Mm -hmm. Because they've got to be having the same problems I've got. Yep. In understanding, two, um, are there issues that are going to impair their ability to provide me with what I need? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case is there other sourcing that I can do? Now, what adds complexity to this is, is that we're coming back in phases. Right. As, as a country and getting back to work, getting back to a normalcy. Mm -hmm. um, where's the location of your vendors? If you've got vendors up in the Northeast, they're going to be much more restrictive coming back into play than any part of the other country because they were impacted the worst and their governors have taken a very hard line when they're going to allow things to come back versus South Dakota. Mm -hmm. They never went out of business, right? They never closed the doors They never closed a restaurant. So you've got to start analyzing and this is where a leader, if you're one of 10 people in a company mm -hmm. trying to figure this out, mm -hmm. or you've got divisional heads, you've got to collectively start communicating what it is we need to do. And so and, what I keep thinking along the lines, because a number of companies like E&Y, McKinsey, Pricewaterhouse, they've all come out with these schematics and here's what you need to be thinking about. Right. Well, the reality is the leader is always in the middle, right. always the focal point. Are you doing these things? Yeah. And E&Y captured it the most. It's about communication 
and invoking trust. Trust in whoever you do business with. That makes sense. And so just so I'm understanding and can picture the value chains, so that first link is your sourcing, your supply chain to ensure that you can, you can provide or supply what you intend to sell to the customer. What is the second link in the? Second link is the company itself, your operations. Okay. Um, and, and again, this gets back to your workforce. Um, is everybody still intact? Mm -hmm. Is everybody ready to come back to work? Mm -hmm. Can they do it virtually or do they have to be uh, in brick and mortar? What are, what are the, what are the things that are need to be done? And the thing that, that I find most intriguing through this process is the uh, differences of scare value. Uh, people have about this virus and returning sure. to work. You've got some that are itching to do it. I'll be there tomorrow. Tell me when and where. You've got others that say, mm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I want to be a little cautious. Are you going to have all the protective gear that I need? And then there's others that say, man, I, I don't want to go in, but I can't afford not to go in. Yeah. And then you got some that are just saying, hey, I, I'm just not going in. So a leader's got to empathize with this situation right now, but yeah. they've got to seek to understand before being understood because you got to make decisions and just like we all do. Russ, you had some thoughts, sir? Yeah, Bill, we, we've been talking to several folks uh, this the last uh, two weeks and um, e even though it'll run out sometime over the summer, a lot of folks are uh, making more than if they came back to work. People are trying to open up, but they say, wait, with an unemployment plus the, the unemployment stimulus from the federal government, I'm making, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm making 30% more just to stay home. And so there is, there's developing, we're sensing a developing of a tension between employers who are working hard to as well. stay open, to not let anybody go or to try to begin pulling people back to kind of get things going again. And the, the workers are, are not all of them, but some of them have, have started to say, well, for me and mine in the, in the short term, this is a better situation for me just to stay home. And that's, that is, that is, you know, a, a hurdle to get over from a loyalty perspective, I think. No question. And again, you can't fault them for thinking about that way. You know, it's like, uh, I'm going to make more. Yep. Well, the reality when you, when you pass a $2.7 trillion bill, um, and you set up these loans or grants, they're grants if you employ your people, show you employ them, uh, versus letting them off on unemployment. Um, that money has got to be paid back if you can't prove it at the end of the day. So it, it even now sets kind of a uh, dilemma for owners. Yeah. They will, I got the loan, I'm approved, but my employees don't want to come back to work. So I've got all the right intentions, but they don't want to come back to work. Right. So it's going to be interesting. And again, this is kind of a fluid situation yeah. whereby the government's kind of changing the rules as, as we move along. But I think this is where an owner, a leader, a manager 
has to be honest with their employees. Mm -hmm. It's about, I understand um, your concern, but in order for us to maintain our viability long-term, we've got to get back to work. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, by doing so, here's what I'm doing for you to ease your pain in terms of concerns. Yeah. Where leaders are going to go awry is if they demand their people to come back. I don't want to hear it. You know, get back here because everything communicates. Yes. Um, so going through this, it's a delicate balance. It's an openness by leadership to show transparency, but also show the optimism. What's the end result here? We want to get back to where we were three months ago. Mm-hmm. where everybody was employed. We had great clients. We had a future to look forward to. That's our vision now. Mm-hmm. You need to come back and share it. And again, rules are going to change. You're going to go, some people through this process are going to learn, man, people can operate from home. Yeah. And, and so that'll be embedded in their business model. They'll figure mm-hmm. out some people through Zoom can conveniently gather yeah collectively and act as a team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's all about changing with the times, adapting with them. Yeah. But more importantly, understand, and this is where we found the real gap between business continuity and disaster planning is your systems can be up and running through business continuity, mm-hmm. but if there's no one there to run it, <laughs> they're not going anywhere. That's where the people come into play. So it, 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 the, the people are the asset yeah. to any organization. So therefore, internally, you've got to look at what's going on in their minds right now. How am I preparing to come back, even in phases, as the government allows me to go further down that line of full employment? Um, what's that going to take? And in the planning, this isn't one to say, oh, God, let's go look at our old plan. Mm-hmm. Look at look at where we failed on all these things. It's dealing with the situation now, the now and the present. Go deal with it. Um, and I think that's where you're seeing now companies trying to figure out what is that solution going to look like. Now, a problem that one has, and I'll give you the restaurant business in particular because I know a lot about that, mm-hmm. is that in an in-dining experience, a restaurant owner maximizes the floor space for seating capacity. Yes. If you go to social distancing and all of a sudden now you've lost 50% of that flooring, well, 50% of your revenue just went out the door too. So how does that now affect your finances? Because you're still paying for the rent, Yes. of that facility. You're still paying for uh, everything associated with your overhead. Mm-hmm. And yet 50% of your revenue is now gone. Yeah. So this is what, what companies are grappling with right now. Some are getting creative. They're looking at takeout as really in fine dining, believe it or not, as being a good percentage of their business going forward. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. here before it wasn't. 
And, and I'm curious here, Bill, is, is what you're transitioning to now, is that the third link in the value chain? Third link is, is who's your consumer? Who's, who's, yeah. who's the end user of what you have? Okay. Do they still want it. Right. Can they afford it? Right. Um, this, this whole idea of bending and being more flexible, the, uh, the complications it has now um, is a rippling effect mm -hmm. because the economy came to a standstill. Right. Now, hopefully with the infusion of the $2.7 trillion, mm -hmm. this isn't like the depression. This is, you know, we just didn't go out and print money. This right. is money that goes immediately back into the system. So that's why I'm more optimistic in July and August mm -hmm. for a rebound, okay. an economic rebound that'll take place in this country because most of the restrictions will be reduced. Most companies will have adapted. Money will start to exchange hands mm -hmm. and we will build off of that. Okay. Um, the other thing that I've experienced through disaster recovery plans and the like is that there's an old saying, this too will pass. Mm -hmm. The American society, we have a tendency of not looking back, but always looking forward. Absolutely. And we forget. Um, and while this is a major concern in the, the hearts and minds of a lot of people, mm -hmm. And uh, we've experienced a rapid uh, virus that had devastating confis uh, uh, the devastation that took place in the deaths. Mm -hmm. the, the reality of this is that, and people forget this, anywhere between 30 and 60,000 people die annually from the flu mm -hmm. in this country. Did we ever stop businesses like we've done today to deal with the flu? No. no. So my belief is there will be a vaccine. There will be, as was noted this morning, some very good progress in coming up with a cure mm -hmm. to treat people uh, with the virus. Right. Once confidence comes back, once the fear factor is out, Organizations will come back. There will still be individuals out there, Russ, that want to stay on the, the corporate, the government dole. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's, that's inevitable. But that ends in July. Yeah, but the majority of the people, the majority of this mm -hmm. country is built on going to work, providing for your family, building a future for yourself, mm -hmm. and that will be uh, back on all cylinders, I think, by the end of the summer. Now, before we close out, I want to make sure for our audience, we've captured the, the key links of the value chain. So you talked about number one, vendors, essentially your supply chain. Uh, number two, your people. Link number three is your client, your end users. What is, you said there was a fourth link, correct, for the value chain? Yeah, the, the fourth link underneath all that is communication. Uh, and it is give you a perfect example in today's environment okay. as a, an organization, as a leader of your company, mm -hmm. um, have you taken this time to reach out mm -hmm. throughout that entire value chain to get a clear and succinct understanding of where your company lies? Okay. 
Um, and with that, if there's a break in any of it, then the individual, the leader mm -hmm. or his team or the organization has to problem solve and figure out how do we shore up that, that break in the linkage um, and go forward. Yeah, it, it, uh, just in listening to you today would seem that communication is actually what brings those links together because that, Absolutely. that seems to be the issue when things fall apart. Very much so, Sean. Okay. Anything we haven't talked about today, and this goes for both you, Bill, and Russ, that you think would be important for our audience to be thinking about during this time as they – as as they you know are getting through the impacts from COVID nineteen. Well, as I was telling Russ, it's very easy to think about where you were three months ago, before mm -hmm. the crisis. Mm -hmm. How was your life? How was your business? Mm -hmm. If your your life was on on track with what your expectations were, you can get back to that. Okay. If it wasn't on track or your business wasn't on track. If you had a failing business model before all this happened, that model doesn't change unless you change it. And so this gives you time to think, um, regather your thoughts, mm -hmm. and then start executing. Because any plan that you put on a piece of paper is only as good as the execution. Yeah. And then answering the end question, did it solve, did it, did it produce the results you expected. Mm -hmm. And everybody's going through this with their personal finances, with 401ks, with everything associated with what happened. Right. Uh, it was totally out of your control. Now what is, as I tell people, focus what's in your control mm. and deal with that. Spend your time on that. Not worrying about what you can. Uh, absolutely. Russ, anything you want to add? Yeah, Bill, uh, Bill, this has been great information, and, and uh, Sean, thank you for guiding the conversation today. Uh, I think the, the main uh, message we're getting out to our institutional um, clients is that there are, uh, there's, a, there's a big, uh, as big as big as any time in recent memory, a weight upon them to uh, be empathetic with their employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, because you know, up until this point, your employees are what what make things happen. Right, right. They're, you know, you can you can get the right vendor, you can get it, but the employees are the are, are what keeps the the wheels uh, turning. So make sure that you're taking good care of them. Um, and and they may have some folks who don't make a decision that they feel is as loyal as it should be. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this moment, empathy is required. Yeah. And, and being able to understand not what I need and not what I want to be able to do my job well and what we think is getting the company back on track, but making sure that, that you know, hey, for the majority of the people who are out of work, um, you, you know, it's, it was before this, it was a day-to-day -day, uh, situation for them. It was a paycheck-to-paycheck -paycheck situation for them. And so when they do have a moment where, you know, whether you like it or not, they're flush with a little bit of extra money for an extra couple of months, say, <laughs> You know what? I'm taking a little bit of a paid ticket. So, it's, it's empathy, which allows you to be able to say, here's what I know we will ultimately need to get back to. 
here's what some other people have on their minds. How do we make sure that everybody is coming together and winning in the, in the system that we put back together? And to Bill's point, we up, up until starting to feel in Georgia, at least, uh, not Michigan, where they're still, you know, tight as a clam, but in Georgia, oh, things are opening up a little bit. You can kind of get out and go to, you know, you can go to sit down and have somebody serve you at a, at a restaurant and do different mm-hmm. things. But, in, you know, you're starting to feel, okay, here's the water level has been up here, in my, you know, my nose, maybe my eyebrows for the last several mm-hmm. weeks. Yeah. Uh, months of weeks. And so now if, it, if, I'm, if I've been able to hold on, then now I'm ready to begin to say, what's my new path forward? I can't go back yes. to the way it was because that'll never be, that'll never be the same. I'll never have that exact thing again. It may look like that. It may feel like that. It may get close to resembling what it used to be, but it's going to always be a new normal. What's the best response? And I think, you know, I like your, your example of the restaurant situation. Uh, if you're sitting there and the, the food could be great and, you know, just that whole experience of going to be waited on, you don't have to do the dishes, you don't have all that other stuff. But if you want to really spend time with someone and be and have a have a quiet time, a restaurant is not that. Everybody's around. Everybody's doing what they're doing. You get some takeout and you go and do what you want to do. It's a great experience. Yeah. I think this is going to force people into um, what I think will be an excellent anthropological study for those for those uh, PhDs that are going to get into this and say, all right, how did our culture change? How did the world change? <laughs> It's going to be a fascinating anthropological yes. study for folks. Uh, it's going to be a great uh, academic study, going to be a great business and financial yeah. study. Um, and there's going to be some scars. There's going to be some scars. There's going to be some, some, some things that you, you, you can't just wash off with a business loan. There's going to be some issues. Yep. But at the end of the day, I agree full heart, uh, with Bill that the – the spirit of what's going on and the reason the market had highs and everything was the way it was is because people wanted to succeed. People wanted to get after it and to succeed. Mm. And the hope is that uh, people will stay on that track. They'll stay on that track. They'll remember, okay, we, we just did it. We just accomplished it. And now we're going to come together and find out the shortest distance to get back to, uh, you know, as close to what we uh, were experienced as possible. So that's perfect. Yes. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about how to apply the three wins framework to your business, go to legacyadvisorypartners.com backslash the three wins. That's with the numeral three and download the free white paper, the three wins. How to unleash the collaboration effect on profits in your business. And I'll also have a link in the show notes for you. So until next time, see you then.